Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller and welcome to The Forever Student. Today we have Dr. Carla Mary Manley. She's a clinical psychologist who is transforming lives and relationships by increasing self-awareness. Today we're going to talk about her journey as a psychologist. We're going to talk about her older book, Joy from Fear. And we're going to talk about her newer book, Date Smart, Transform Your Relationships and Love Fearlessly. Dr. Carla, welcome to The Forever Student. Stefan, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners today. It's an absolute pleasure. I've researched you pretty extensively and it was very difficult to not overwhelm you with so many different questions or across so many different topics because I think you've you've written uh, three books so far and um, if not if not more but I I, th- I think the first thing that I really wanted to dive into is your journey as a psychologist why you've become one and then the follow-up question is really about what your role is with your patients to so talk about you know, what the role is of a psychologist to begin with? Okay, both really good questions. So I'll start with the first. Um, I am one of those people who knew from a very early age that I wanted to be in the field of mental health. I don't know how I knew that. I just knew it. And so I, in, in the States, we have the cartoon of Charlie Brown. And I remember as a child looking at Lucy with her little house of, you know, free psychiatric advice or five cents psychiatric advice was how it. And I remember thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to help Mm. people. I want to help people. And fortunately or unfortunately, I tested quite high on IQ tests. So my family always wanted me to be an attorney, something very powerful in the business world. And I'm the ninth child in a family of 10 children. And so... I was nudged along that path and ultimately graduated college, went to law school, but my body really spoke to me and said, this is not right for you. Um, Unfortunately, I took another path, which was um, working in the investment realm. It was something I needed to do because of life circumstances, but it wasn't my vocation. And I always, I had my master's degree um, by then in counseling, which was school psychology, that sort of thing, being a school counselor. But then I had to divert into the investment realm. I was terribly unhappy and made, you know, loads of money for other people, but was my soul was just very starved. So I ultimately said, I am going back to school. I must go back to school to fulfill my dream. And unfortunately, that caused some rifts in my life where there were people who wanted me to be doing what I was doing. And so I had to really break down my life in a certain way and face a lot of my fears. So when I was in doctoral school, it was the first time in my life that I met people who were like me. My soul was saying, oh, these are people who speak my language. These are people who speak language of the heart. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I am not crazy. There are people who think like me on the planet. (laughs) And so in that process, that is where my first book, Joy from Fear, came from. That process of realizing that I, who had never thought I was a fear-based person, I realized I had lived so much of my life in a place of being afraid of displeasing others, afraid of not being loved, afraid of not doing the right thing. When in truth, 
my inner being wanted me to serve others in the world of psychology, which is not a money-oriented realm. And so I created, as part of my doctoral dissertation, a qualitative and quantitative questionnaire about fear and did an incredible amount of research, very detailed research, to figure out how could I, was my experience unique with fear or was a large portion of the population held back by fear? And for people who weren't held back from fear, how were their lives different? And that is where joy, from, the genesis of joy from fear. And as people were reading my dissertation, they said, oh my goodness, you have to help people with this book. You have to make it into a book. And so eight years later, Joy from Fear came into being through my amazing publisher, Familius, who really understood my goal. And I didn't want anyone to have to suffer what I suffered, to suffer so much of a loss of time and and life. Not that I regret anything because everything I've encountered in life has made me a stronger, better clinician and a better person. And so that was my journey and into the realm of being a psychotherapist. Again, it was not linear. It was not easy. It was actually quite difficult. But the end, I do what I love to do, which is to help people. And that is also why I like being an author, because Joy from Fear, for example, for the cost of a book, um, can help someone who really wants to embrace it and go through self-awareness work. It can be life-changing if somebody wants to use it in a book club or, or you know, group work. It is a life-changing book. And I designed it that way. I didn't want anyone to be deprived of learning how to evolve. And I had to learn how to evolve on my own. It was, you know, I didn't have, you know, a lot of resources at the time. So that is where joy from fear came from. And I wanted it to be very user friendly so that somebody could find actionable steps. So there are journaling prompts, there are breathing exercises, so that it's not, some self-help books are just like, here, this is lovely information here, take it, change your life. And that wouldn't work for most people. Most people would need some support and structure along the way. So that's where joy from fear came from. So if for now to your question about um, what is my daily life like, my daily practice, I believe in really giving back to my community. So one of the things that I do, whether my community is my local community or beyond, some portion of my day is always given to helping writers around the world or doing podcasts so that I am using my expert hat to impart information that people can find, whether it's, you know, through a news article or something. So I like donating my time that way. It makes me feel really good. And I love supporting other people. I also see clients. And because of the pandemic, um, my clinical schedule is largely by um, a HIPAA compliant video platform. And so I now see clients, I still have my downtown office, but because of, you know, COVID, it's not really safe to see people in person. And that is also, there are positives to that, negatives to it. When clients come to my office in person, I give them tea and I'm really, they have this lovely, safe, quiet, tech-free space where they, it's just their space. And I listen and, and, um, work with them. And by video platform, it's somewhat different, but 
you know, I can't offer tea, but I am. The upside is, as compared to seeing somebody wearing a mask where you can't really see the facial expression, I'm able to see them and also able to see them in their home environment. Or if they're talking from a car or a closet or a garage, you know, or their cat's walking across the computer screen, it gives me a chance to be part of their intimate world. So there are, you know, pros and cons. And then my psychological practice, I am an EMDR clinician. it's eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Um, and so that's one of the tools in my toolkit. I also use some CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. I am Jungian trained, Carl Jung. So that's my background and my love. Um, but what I do, it's hard to explain because I don't have a single template like I'm doing CBT, I'm doing EMDR on you today because that's not what everybody needs. So I try and really show up for a client, not giving advice, but I liken myself to one of two things, a person who's holding a lantern to light the way for my client, because sometimes when we're struggling through life, things seem very dark and we can't see things that might be obvious to other people or not so obvious. So I often think of myself as a lantern, just trying to shed light. And the other way that I like to work is I feel like sometimes I'm a hound dog, kind of sniffing along with the client to really pay attention to their thoughts, their feelings, things they may not be picking up. So for me, it's a very an energetic practice where I'm really present with the client um, I also, my background, I am um, a yoga practitioner, a yoga teacher, a meditation practitioner, a meditation leader. So I try and incorporate as much of those mindfulness, mind, body, spirit practices as I can into my life and my approach and also giving back in the community. So for example, pre-pandemic for number of years, I taught meditation every Tuesday morning to um, women in a drug and alcohol rehab center. And so helping people, and it's incredible how something that simple can change lives. So that's, that's my background. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I, I, while you were speaking, I already had so many questions that that came to mind. And I think I wanted to go into your, your experience with fear because I think that's a fascinating, it's a fascinating topic because often people know what they should be doing, but they're not doing it for several reasons, right? And it might be, it might be because of money, it might be because of relationships, it might be because of whatever else. What made you actually step into the right direction, let's call it? Like what sort of switch went off for you personally And then how did you go about acting on it? Because now you've written a book that provides us with all these tools, but I'm sure that you weren't using those exact tools when you made that decision back then. No, (laughs) I certainly needed a guiding light above me and I did not have one. (laughs) And that's again, why I wrote Joy from Fear. I didn't want anyone to suffer as much as I did. Um, So the light went on for me in, in a strange way. Um, I was married and I really believe in marriage. I believe in keeping my word. So breaking out of a marriage where I had committed to somebody till death do us part was not an easy thing for me. I mean, that was to keep my word is like everything to me. But what I realized one day when I spoke to my husband, who my first husband, who I had really just 
supported in every way possible. And I didn't really ask for much. I was such a good, dutiful person in every part of my life. And I remember talking to him one day and saying, honey, please, I'm dying here. I know that we live the life that you want and I'm you know, the primary breadwinner and all of these things, but I'm suffocating here. I'm not happy, please. I need to go back to school. And he looked at me and he said, no, you have enough education. You just keep going on your path. And I looked at him and thought, my goodness, I've supported every dream you've had and you have not supported one of mine. I mean, I don't ask for much. And that was that was the moment for me. I remember where I was standing and thinking, this is not, you know, the divine would not ask me to do this. This is not, I am not helping because money is not my higher power. And that's the kind of realm I was in was helping people accrue you know more funds for them and I didn't like the work and I didn't like I just didn't I I abhorred it and so for me I had to and I remember sitting down and saying to myself and I really asked myself this question this was my tool would you rather because I knew I was risking a lot I was risking the love and acceptance of my family I was risking financial stability and I had two children so I had to look out for them you know I had to do the right thing but I sat down and I asked myself I still remember would you prefer to live this life or if it came to this and you had to live under a bridge which would you live and I thought to myself even though I knew I wouldn't end up under a bridge, I really have to bracket it and say that, but I had to be prepared to go there. And I said, I'd rather be under a bridge. This is not right for me. It is not bringing out the best for me. And I asked myself that question. And then the very next day, I believe I started applying to doctoral schools. And fortunately, I had, you know, one person in my life who really supported me, who was my mother. And, you know, bless her her soul, she's not on the planet any longer. But um, if it weren't for her support and the support of my two children, you know, and I, I really have to give my doctoral degree to them. And because that's, that's, you know, they helped me earn it. So I think those are the types of things where, you know, you can feel the pain, you can go right back there and feel the pain of having to make a decision where you know that you may alienate people. But I believe that the people who truly love you will want you to do, to follow your vocation. And I don't think a vocation has to be a doctoral degree or medicine or law. I think your vocation can be art. It can be joining the Peace Corps. It can be, you know, working with animals. And like I always have told my children, I want you to be the best you can be, whatever it is. I want you to be the happiest, whether that means the happiest artist, the happiest garbage collector, the happiest street sweeper, that whatever it is that gives you joy, because that's what the world needs. If everyone were doing their best, it's not selfish. If we were all doing our best to follow our calling, to be really happy and joyful and make the world a better place, Mm. the world would be a much better place. 100%. That's beautifully said. How, a couple of questions and answer them however, however you like. But the first is, how do we understand what our calling is? I know that's a very loaded question. I, I mean it more in the sense of if we're, if we're trying to move towards fear and obviously there'll be barriers in between, how do we know it's the right move? 
are there certain signs that that we should follow? That's such a good question. And it's not always very easy to differentiate. So in Joy from Fear, for listeners, I talk about destructive fear and constructive fear. Destructive fear is the fear that holds us back from being our best selves. Constructive fear is the fear that when we move into it, it helps us be a better person. That's transformational fear. On the other side, there are realistic fears fears that a dog that is known to bite people will bite you, right? That's a realistic fear, but we don't have many fears like that, real fears in our daily lives. We don't have too many things that are actually going to kill us, but fear takes hold of us, causes anxiety, all of those things. So how do we differentiate? One of the things, if you have a higher power, if you believe in God, if you believe in, you know, I believe that if we tune into whatever that space is, even if it's your intuition, that that is a very soft voice. And so that is one of the ways to differentiate. Unless you're in danger, sometimes, you know, higher power comes in and goes, boom, stop, right? But in most cases, there it's a gentle voice. Whereas fear will have a loud voice. It will say, don't you do that. You're not good enough. Nobody will love you. That's not what you, fear also uses the word should a lot. You should do this. You should do that. And so I believe that when we are listening to what our calling is, for example, and I really have to honor my higher power because my books, I believe they are not really mine either. They come through me. I am the writer. Yes, I devote a great deal of time and energy to them, but sometimes they're just so beyond me that there's something else coming through me, some wisdom. Um, So I always have to acknowledge that. And I also believe that that ties into our voice, that if we get out of our own way, I often say, you know, let me get out of the way of what the universe wants for me. And if we take that attitude and say, basically, thy will be done, I will listen, you send me then sometimes because we all yearn for things. And so if we if we notice, okay, I'm yearning for this, now let me get nudged in the right direction. I think that's helpful. So really learning to slow down and listen. So how do you tell what your calling is if you're not born knowing I want to be a fireman or a doctor or a painter? Some people know that. But if that isn't pressing for you, but mind you, um, Many of us get a calling at a very early age and we discount it. We say, oh, I was only three or I was only seven when I knew that. And mom or dad told me, you won't make money at that. Or no, 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 no. So pay attention to that. Go back to those early yearnings before your passion was socialized out of you. Go back to those early yearnings and listen to them. And when I go back to some of my early yearnings, I wanted to write. I had a pencil in my hand as far back as I can remember. So that's a piece of it. And that was a bit squished out of me. Um, And then I had to resuscitate it. So the other thing is, if you're in a life and you're saying, I just, I know I'm not happy, but I don't know what my passion is. Start asking, start paying attention to what you don't like right? Sometimes we forget the power of paying attention to what we don't like. So maybe you're in a job where you're putting letters in boxes at the mail, you know, or something. You know, I don't really like this. What don't you like about it? Well, I need more stimulation. I need more people, you know, more contact with people. I need less contact with people. So pay attention to what you don't like and yearn to do less of it. Find a 
something and pay attention to what you do like so if you're you know drawing and you say oh my goodness I just love this world start doing more of that and I believe that the more we pay attention to those yearnings the more we move in that direction and I've seen it in my private practice and people I've worked with in groups that the more we pay attention to what is right for us and move toward that the universe the divine you know whatever you want to call it has a way of supporting us. And I am a perfect case study. I'm not saying again, I have to emphasize it wasn't easy, but I had faith and I kept moving forward one step at a time. And I had faith. And I think that there's, faith is so important because I think the universe supports those of us who really have the faith that we are doing the right thing, that we are going to our higher calling. Yeah, I love a lot of the things that you said and just from what you've said, my takeaways are one is trust the higher power. And if that's not God, if you don't call it God, you can call it the universe. I think secondly, listening to that silent voice is something that is not easy, but it also, I feel like there are certain practices that you can, uh, you can incorporate into your day or into your week where the voice becomes a little louder and a little clearer right? Like whether that's meditation, whether that's journaling, whether that's exercise, whether that's prayer, whatever it may be, I think there's ways to, to make that voice a bit clearer. Because if you're, if you're not stimulating yourself in positive ways, if you're not um, doing value adding habits, or if you're not, you know, doing things that are healthy mentally or physically, that voice could get suppressed, that voice could get hidden. Right. And I think that's also an important thing. And then, and then lastly, another thing that you said, which is interesting is that when you start moving in the right direction, signs will come that you are moving in the right direction, right? Like you'll start, I've had this so many times, like all of a sudden you'll meet people that similar to what, what you were saying, right? Like all of a sudden you were meeting people that were speaking your language. And I think that's a very important thing as well. And you don't have to I think what's important to, uh, to point out is that you don't have to put all your eggs in that basket, right? So for you, it might have been a bit more of a drastic switch because for you, there was a clear point where it was like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm moving into my light. I'm moving into the right direction. But for others, it might be like, okay, well, I still need to pay rent and I still need to do this and I still need to do that. I'm going to slowly start experimenting with the things that I do really enjoy in my life and start suppressing more of the things that I, that I don't enjoy doing. And, um, and so essentially what I'm trying to say is I, I agree fully and, um, with what you're, with what you're saying, I think it's extremely, extremely powerful. Thank you, Stefan. And I just want to be clear for listeners that even if I made it sound like it was more of a quick break, it actually, I, I just, I, it was very difficult. I didn't have the resources, financial or otherwise, mm. to have that abrupt break. So I was in doctoral school, working full time in the career I didn't like, going oh, to doctoral school and doing my homework nights, weekends. I mean, everything. I was breathing, you know, two worlds. And then here's a really good example of how the universe stepped in. As I began my internship, and many of the people in my program were 
already working in the field of psychology. They were building on an active master's degree, right? Where my master's degree was way in my past and I was in a completely unrelated field. I said, universe, you know, God divine, how am I going to do this? What happened? I applied for a position. I got the job, which I didn't think I got. And the the pay was minuscule, right? Minuscule, but could have never paid my bills. I mean, even begun to. And I was like, okay, well, I can live on potatoes, but what about my kids, right? And so (laughs) what ultimately happened, just as I let go of that other job, I finally had to, I had to make that abrupt shift or I couldn't have, the people who had taken over that program came to me and said, you know, we're redoing this switch. How much do you need to make? And I said, well, please, I can't make anything less than what I'm making now, which wasn't you know, that much. And they said, oh, no, we actually need to at least quadruple that rate. Who gets a, an offer like that? Who? I mean, where, where did that come from? That they would have to quadruple? And I thought, oh, my goodness, that was divine. That was, I mean, like, I still get chills when I think about it. I was thinking, please, you know, I was thinking small, like, don't take away my little pittance. And they're like, no, we need to pay you far more because that's. So anyway, that's a perfect example of how that happens. And back to something you said, and I really want listeners to under, because I so agree with you, Stefan, that when we slow down to allow our inner voice to come through, that's when it will come through. Yet, and this is so important, we live in a society where there is constant chatter, constant chatter of social media, the news, the television, that we go on walks, I'm guilty of this, putting a podcast in our ears, right? <laughs> Yet, what I've learned, as much as I love podcasts and, and you know Audible and all of those things, I've learned that sometimes the universe is asking me, it's okay to put your you know, headphones in your ear, but do not turn that device on today. Walk in silence. And then I'll generally take my, um, sometimes the earbuds give you a sense of privacy, but also I like to walk in nature so I can hear the birds. But when I do that and allow myself to have a moving meditation, there are usually messages coming through and we cannot hear the divine God, you know, again, just whatever somebody would like to term it. Um, When we have so much buzz going on in our lives, whether it's music, whether, you know, no matter what it is. So make space, please, for yourself where there is true silence, where the the, the voice that wants to speak to you, wants to guide you, your inner truth, whatever you call it, has the space to come through. Yeah, and I think to that point, and, and I've spoken to this, about this quite extensively, where I think a lot of a lot of people are hesitant, reluctant, or even afraid of spending firstly that time by themselves, and secondly, especially that time in silence. And one of the main reasons is being that we haven't really sat in silence or walked in silence because we have to face thoughts that we haven't dealt with. So I think to your point, absolutely spend time and spend time by yourself, go for a beautiful walk in nature, do it without any sort of distractions and stick with it as well. Because I think you might be able, you might do it once and, and get turned off by it because it was so overwhelming. But, you know, I think 
working through those things. Um, and obviously, you know, you're the perfect person to speak to this because I'm sure that you see this a lot in your practice is, um, is to stay consistent with it. Absolutely. Because your psyche will at first want to say, oh, this is bothersome. It's boring. I don't want to do this. And just tell that voice, which is a destructive voice, just tell it, hey, you know, I'm putting you over here and this time is for me and I'm just going to learn to enjoy it. I'm going to learn that sound of silence to be okay with it. And Stefan, we could go on for hours, I could tell, but um, it's something that you said is so important. If anyone out there listening is afraid of inner thoughts, afraid of what might come up, please trust that there is nothing inside of you that is actually already already not foreign to you. And I like to look at it like this. We all know, or I hope we know, you know, what a refrigerator or icebox is like. And that icebox, it's sealed and it has lots of things inside of it. And sometimes they're moldy and sometimes they're fresh, but they're there. Whether you open the fridge and look or not, you have fresh things and wonderful things. And likely you have things that got stuffed in the back. I'm sure I do that are expired or not, you know, in perfect condition. And that's our thoughts. That's inside us. We have this refrigerator that has lovely, wholesome, wonderful things and some things that have not been cleared out, that, but they're there. So keeping that door shut and pretending I'm not going to look at this. And if I don't, they're not there. Well, truth is, if you keep that door shut, you're not enjoying the wholesome things. And you're also not clearing out the things that you have inside of you that might be a little moldy or rotting. And we all have them. We all do. And no matter how long we've been doing self-work, there are things in that fridge that need pulled out. I'm like, you again? What are you doing here? I thought I cleaned you out. Okay, <laughs> there you go. And so if we take that attitude, some, you know, a bit of levity, but as well, you know, humor, but realizing that that's just humanity. We all have moldy stuff in the fridge and it's okay. Let's just keep cleaning it out. And I think it's important that, you know, you you take care of the moldy stuff because the longer that you keep it there, the worse it's going to get. Right. Like I think if, you know, suppressed feelings and suppressed thoughts, I feel can grow in intensity over time. And then when they eventually come out, it's often at the wrong time. And it often, I'm sure it just surprises you as well um, of how intense that could be. Absolutely. And I think, and it's the same thing. And that's why I like, you know, when I came up with that, the metaphor of the refrigerator, because it's true. If we don't all the sun, one day we look and not only has that, you know, moldy cheese gotten completely green, not just on the edge. Now it's completely green, but it infected something next to it. Right. And so that is the most important part about self-evolution is realizing if there's something inside of you that you are afraid of, do not worry. It's part of you. It has a message for you. And that's the whole idea about transformational fear. If we learn to look at that which is inside us and say, what are you here for? What are you telling me? How can I grow from you? That's what our experiences are there for. And if we don't do that, you know, and this is the big red flag. If we don't do that, 
we're in danger of repeating those same cycles again and again and again, new day, new situation, same theme. And so when we pause to really look at things and not judge ourselves for being too late to the game or having accrued too much moldy stuff, you know, that happens. It's okay. And, you know, when I work with my clients, so much of the work that I do is helping them see, helping people see we're all so much more alike than we are different. We are so much alike. We all have stuff. It might have different names, um, you know, different timing, but you are not broken. You are not beyond repair. You are not damaged. You are a wonderful human being who simply wants to be set free. And the only way we can set ourselves free is to face our fears, not get over them, not go around them, but go through them to listen to the messages and come out the other side, a more whole free person and to continue that process until our very last breath. Beautifully said, beautifully said. I want to just transition into the book that you more recently wrote. And this is something that I've been very excited to speak about because we haven't addressed it at all on this podcast, much to my surprise and much to your surprise, I think, as well, before we started speaking. But this is relationships. And you wrote a book called Date Smart, Transform Your Relationships and Love Fearlessly. So question one and two combined are, why did you write this book? And what are some key insights from it? I wrote Date Smart because it's interesting. I was called to write it. I was actually in queue with my publisher to work on a different book. And I just kept getting messages through my client work, through speaking, through through various things that you need to write a book on dating. People are suffering. People are suffering tremendously. So. I wrote to my publisher, did, you know, a draft, and they said, you know, it sounds like a, like a needed book. So that's what I launched into, Heart and Soul. And so what dates, so that's where it came from that, you know, and I really, it's another example of I have to listen to what, what I'm being asked to do. Um, and so, and not that it was an easy project, but it had a clear direction. And here's the direction of date smart, which is why it's not just for people who are in the dating world. What I wanted to do is bring authenticity back to dating because I believe that that's what's missing. We've gotten so much into being a disposable world, a disposable culture where, where everything that we buy, oh, dispose of it, a relationship, a marriage, oh, dispose of it, there's another one, rather than working on it. And we also, with social media, we've become very focused on, how do you say, external, external appearances, what people have very superficial things. And some of that, I guess, is important. But if you gave me a choice of dating somebody who's absolutely attractive but has no soul and somebody who may not be the poster child for attractiveness but has a good soul, no contest. I mean, no contest. Um, And so I wanted people to help themselves without and but there may be to be fair there may be somebody who says oh somebody who has lots of money and no soul and cute enough is better than somebody who's simple and pure I don't judge that but I believe you should know that about yourself and that's where date smart comes from it comes from that place of I'm not judging you I am helping 
guide you into dating authentically. So first, know what you have to offer other people. What are you bringing to the table? Are you bringing honesty, authenticity? Are you bringing a long-term commitment? Are you bringing fidelity? Are you bringing two children you know, from a prior relationship? Are you bringing mental health issues? What are you bringing? Be honest with it. Then what do you want someone to bring to you, right? Are you wanting them to bring you love and affection and fidelity? Um, are you wanting them to bring you bucketfuls of money, you know, adventure, what? Be honest with yourself. And then look at the two. And notice if there's a lack of congruency. If you're not willing to bring fidelity and honesty, why are you asking someone else to bring fidelity and honesty? So things like that, again, with exercises, always with exercises, because that's where we face the brutal truth when of, of who we are and what we want. And sometimes it's brutal, sometimes it's lovely. But I, that's what I believe is missing in today's world. We are so used to, especially the younger generation. I was doing a podcast with some, um, you know, young women a couple of weeks ago, and it was heartbreaking because they were telling me, you know, both beautifully, beautiful, lovely souls, and they're saying, we're so tired of hookups. We're so tired of it. It's breaking our spirits. Well, for some people, they're hookup oriented and it doesn't harm them because they're not really in touch with their souls enough to, and I, this might sound judgmental, but um, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I believe that our emotions, our bodies are so sacred that if we're disposing of them and allowing other people to dispose of them, I believe it comes at a cost. That's my personal my personal take. And it's also my take from the people I've worked with. Most people who have been in the hookup culture, men and women, will come to me and say, this hasn't worked out for me very well. I, it is not, <laughs> you know, I remember one you know, really attractive young man I was working with who, from his looks, you know, I imagine he could have any woman that was interested in that. He says, I'm so tired of having all these women in my life. I don't like what I've become. And I remember him sitting across from me and just almost pleading with me, how do I stop doing this? I'm disposing left and right. And there are more where that one came from. They're in queue waiting for me. And at first it felt good and now it feels awful. And so there's a lot of healing work to do around that. And it's so funny because it wasn't many months ago where I got a message from him saying, thank you so much. I am on such a good path now. Thank you so much. And so that is what Date Smart is about, guiding you to be honest with yourself so that when you're dating, you can say, hey, all I want is a hookup. I'm not looking for a long-term commitment. Are you after that, right? And being respectful to people, being honest with people, not tricking people, not pay, playing games. And also, talk. you know, I go really into depth talking about if you have children, about how important it is to make sure that the person that you're meeting honors your children rather than just exposing children to anything as though they're just not important, realizing the impact that our relationships have on everyone in our circle, particularly children, who will then grow up and repeat the patterns, whether they're good or not so good. And also I talk about the importance of not dating, that there are times in life where you might feel pressured to date and you just don't want to date. 
where it's the time for you to do some soul searching or to enjoy your breathing space and your quiet time, that to not let yourself be pressured by you or by other people to date if you need a time out. And I also talk about in, throughout, there are 33 mindset shifts. And one of my favorite mindset shifts says something like this. Please remember that we all have the same need to be seen, safe, and loved. And when we look at relationships like that, that, you know, even in our, you know, time today, Stefan, you want to be seen, you want to be safe in my work with you, and you want to be loved. And I feel the same way. I want to be seen, I want to be safe, I want to be loved. And if we carry that throughout our interactions, romantic and otherwise, we can transform our lives and love fearlessly because then we can call people to us who have that same mindset about the sacredness of love. Um, because I believe and have learned more and more over time how sacred love is, how it's really really all that matters because if you say to me well you know Carla or Dr. Carla when you die what do you want to be known for how much money you have in the bank or how much you loved and how well you loved no contest just no contest who cares how much money is in my bank I don't you know as long as I have enough to enough to live um and if I had tons of money in my bank I would be giving it away anyway so you know it's what do you want to be known for in your life? And that's part of Date Smart. It's part of every book I write is really helping. In fact, as you said, I, I do have another book in the works that just the manuscript was just sent off and the pub date is in the future. But that one really gave me a chance to hone more of who I am and what I want to offer people. And it's very relationship focused and very self relationship focused because our relationships start from here. If yeah. we are, we are never perfect, right? But if we are trying to be good people, loving people, trying not to do harm in the world, I don't think we can ever make too many mistakes. Yeah. Oh, I wish we had so much more time because I could easily spend another two hours um, listening to you. I, I, one thing that I found particularly fascinating is when you said, think about what you're bringing to the table and think about what you're expecting. Because I think that when you're in, not just when you're dating, when you're in established relationships, whether you're already three, five, 10 years in, and there's a misalignment, that misalignment can often have to do with a misalignment in these needs, these needs and these wants and, and understanding that, okay, are you... Um, are you upset because your expectation hasn't been met, but has that expectation been communicated? And if you're saying something like, you know, I expect to be treated with respect, um, are you treating that other person with respect? You know, I think what, what's very interesting, what you're, uh, what, you're, what you're saying is like, ask yourself a lot of questions, right? Like, and this, this again comes down to like spending some time by yourself and, 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 and going through um, going through your expectations, what you want out of life, what you want out of a relationship. Um, so there's a, there's a lot there that I, th I think is very valuable. One question I am particularly curious about your answer, and I think this might be our last one, but when we, when we are working on ourselves, so let's say that me, Stefan, I'm suffering from mental health problems and I found 
a person that I'm, you know, extremely attracted to both physically and emotionally, and we enter a relationship. Do you think it's feasible to work on your own problems while you're in a relationship? Or do you think it's like, okay, maybe this is when you need to be single. Maybe this is when you need to, you know, work on yourself and figure it out first. Great question. One of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how you phrased it. <laughs> so I believe one of my favorite quotes, um, Maria Rayner Rilke, um, and it's right here on my wall, for one human being to love another. That is perhaps the most difficult of all of our tasks. The ultimate, the last test and proof, the work or what all other work is but preparation. Only in this sense as the task of working at themselves to hearken and to hammer day and night might young people use the love that is given to them. And I love that quote. It was from one of his letters. And I think it applies to all of us. So taking that to answer your question, I believe that our soul work, and this will sound strange and, and might even sound you know, at, at odds with some things I've said earlier, but I believe that some of our best soul work can be done in relationship. Yes, there are times where we do need a timeout, where there is just so much pain and inner conflict going on and cloudiness that we couldn't be a present partner for anyone. Let's say you're in the throes of anorexia nervosa or in the throes of an addiction, big red flag there. No, being in a relationship when you're in the throes of that sort of stranglehold, never a wise idea. However, if you don't have something that significant and you know your wounds and you know you are wounded and you find someone who is physically and emotionally attractive and feels like this is a really good possibility, if you show up and say to that person when the timing is right, this is who I am. These are my wounds. I am working on these wounds. There may be more wounds I am not aware of. Tell me about you and your wounds. Tell me about you. And, and when you get that type of connection where you have two souls, and this is the essence of my fourth book, right? This is, I just dive deep into this area. That it's not about getting to this perfect state of being this perfect person. And now I love myself enough to love you. Oh, no, no, no. Sometimes our best work, our most self-evolution, uh, you know, that, that the greatest self-evolution comes when we have a partner who is willing to work with us so that we are helping them, they are helping us. They enlighten us, we enlighten them. And I think that that is where some of our greatest soul work happens when we hearken and hammer. Now, it takes a very special person to do that. If you have a partner and you're suffering and you have an abusive partner, no, no, I mean, it will... It, may kill you, literally kill you. It may psychologically kill you. If you're trying to do work and you're facing somebody who is an abuser, is in the throes of addiction or says they're recovered, but they're, you know, in yet another addiction, right? That will harm you. 
But if you meet someone who says, these are my wounds and I'm actively working on them slowly but surely. And you say, oh, these are mine and I'm working on them. Let's build a house together and let's consciously work together. Oh my goodness. And that is, again, the essence of my next book, how to use relationships to consciously, not to use another person, but to use the relationship as that crucible for transformation of the self, the relationship, and helping the other transform. And I think that that's one of the most sacred places um, in life is when you have a relationship like that. And of course, sometimes you need a therapist to help guide you and or your partner along the way. but absolutely. I, so I hope that answered your question. It 100% did. And Dr. Carla, I can't wait to read Joy from Fear. I can't wait to read Date Smart. And I can't wait for your third book to come out and to have you back on the show for, for more time to, uh, to dive into this. I learned a tremendous amount today. I, it, it was a pleasure listening to you. And um, very grateful that you made the time. So thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. And just just a little bit of clarification because we didn't speak about it. My third book was actually Aging Joyfully, which we didn't talk about today. But my fourth book, and I'll just give you a a sneak peek, it's the working title is The Joy of Imperfect Love. And that will be my fourth one. Now, that might not be the published title because, you know, that's how the publishing world works. But you can tell from that sneak peek, it will be tremendous. But I thank you so much for sharing time with me. It has been such a delight. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Carla. 